As everyone knows, the two main protagonists in the negotiations that led to the end of apartheid, Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk, were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993. Just as in Northern Ireland, John Hume and David Trimble, and the Middle East, Yasser Arafat, Yitzhak Rabin and Shimon Peres, the prize was awarded to leading figures on opposite sides of the divide who brought their supporters to the negotiating table. Less well known is the fact that nine years earlier, in 1984, the Nobel Prize had already been awarded to Desmond Tutu, then the first ever black Archbishop of Cape Town. With the ANC, the Pan-African Congress and the South African Communist Parties all banned and most of their leaders either in jail or in exile, black opposition within South Africa to the apartheid system and the national party governments that presided over it was largely confined to church leaders. Of these, Tutu was the most prominent and his combination of wit, fearlessness and passion gained him an international reputation as an outspoken opponent of apartheid. Although it was assumed that his status as a leading clergyman gave him an element of protection, the dangers inherent in his political activism were recently graphically illustrated by the revelation by Adrian Flock, the then Minister of Law and Order, that he personally ordered the attempted murder by the police of Frank Chikani, Tutu's immediate successor as General Secretary of the South African Council of Churches and also a fierce critic of apartheid, by lacing his underwear with nerve poison. Throughout Tutu's time as Archbishop of Cape Town, as a black man, his occupation of the official archbishop's residence in a white-only area was unlawful in the absence of a special permit, something he pointedly refused to apply for. During the tense years between the release of Nelson Mandela in 1990 and the first multiracial elections in 1994, which were marked by outbreaks of violence between supporters of Chief Butelezi and his Zulu Inkata Freedom Party and the ANC, Tutu was again fearless in his denunciation of violence on one occasion stepping down from the platform at a rally and walking into the crowd to rescue a suspected informer who was about to be necklaced. Arguably his most controversial role in the peaceful transition from apartheid to majority rule was as chairman of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to which he was nominated by President Mandela in 1996. The Commission's two main committees were the Human Rights Violation Committee, which investigated human rights abuses, and the Amnesty Committee, which was empowered to grant amnesty for politically motivated, gross human rights abuses committed between 1960, the date of the Sharpeville massacre, and 1994, the first multiracial elections, provided that the applicant could prove that he had made a full confession of his crimes. For three years, these two committees held public hearings, which were shown every Sunday on South African television. The work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was not without its critics. Some supporters of the National Party accused it of bias and victor's justice. Some victims of apartheid violence, including the family of Steve Biko, complained that they were being deprived of their right to see justice done and perpetrators brought to book. Both the ANC and the National Party took court action to seek to prevent publication of findings which were critical of them. Archbishop Tutu is now retired, albeit much in demand around the world, as a lecturer and advisor on conflict resolution. I'm fortunate to be joined by him in his office outside Cape Town to hear his views on why the transition from apartheid to multiracial democracy was relatively peaceful and the arguments for and against the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Archbishop Tutu, in your book, you say that when you became Archbishop of Cape Town in 1986, one of the three goals you set yourself for your term of office was the liberation of all South African people, black and white. When did you first think that apartheid would come to an end in your lifetime? <laughs> I've never doubted that uh, 
apartheid because it was in and of itself fundamentally, intrinsically evil, uh, was going to bite the dust uh, eventually. Uh, what I was uncertain about uh, for a very long time, and indeed it came as a great surprise uh, when the demise of apartheid happened, um, was whether it was going to happen in my lifetime. It wasn't a question of if. Uh, it was it was just that one wondered about the when, uh, because this is essentially a a moral universe, uh, and it's it's part of the makeup, the structure of this universe that evil will not ultimately prevail. Um, and as I say, I mean, I, 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 I didn't think, although I hoped it would happen, I didn't think it was going to be happening in, in my lifetime. Uh, I was taken by surprise at how quickly events um, evolved. When uh, F. W. de Klerk succeeded uh, P. W. Botha in 1989. Did you have any idea then that within a few months he would dismantle apartheid and release Nelson Mandela? No, I, I, I think he deserves a, a, a very special niche in, in, in the history of our country. Uh, we, we want to doff our caps metaphorically uh, to him because he, he showed an in, in, in immense courage in in announcing those initiatives in, in February uh, of 1990. But I didn't at the time when the change happened, I mean, from uh, F.W. Porter to himself, at the time think that this was ushering a, a new dawn, as it were, because up to that time, he actually was one of the more conservative ministers in the cabinet and and one had thought that we were just going to have more of the same so it was it was a very great surprise very pleasant surprise when he he showed uh, he could be so flexible uh, and 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 probably say that uh, he was being realistic and and as i say uh, for that particular uh, example of political courage, uh, there's no doubt at all that he will forever have a very special place in, in the history of our country. Why do you think that he did dismantle apartheid and start yes. the process? I think, I mean, that uh, he began to realize, I mean, that with the changes in the geopolitics the ending of Soviet expansionism, that that indicated that South Africa could no longer, as they had been doing in the, in the past, would wink the, the rest of the world by saying they were uh, the last custodians of Western civilization against the depredations of Soviet communism. I, I think that that is one he, he, he realized now that that trump card he no longer held. 
The second, certainly that is the impression he gave me, was that he, he, he realized that sanctions had bitten uh, far more deeply into the economy of our country than they wanted to, to, to make out. Uh, because, you see, when I, I called uh, on one or two occasions to congratulate him on, on the steps that he had announced, almost like a, uh, a cracked record, he kept asking when I was going to ask for the lifting of sanctions. Now, in the past, they kept making out that uh, these sanctions were uh, thoroughly ineffective. They were, they were no more than just a flea bite, um, a, a nuisance more than anything else. And I said, well, I, would, I used to say, well, I mean, if they are such a nuisance, why do you seem to have an obsession, I mean, with their removal? I mean, if they are nothing, you could just treat them with disdain. But it was clear. You know, I mean, that they were unable to continue the fight in Angola uh, because the equipment they had was uh, obsolete. Uh, they could not renew their military equipment. The arms uh, embargo was biting. And the, the fact that you know, the banks were, were refusing to roll over South African loans, uh, that hit them uh, at a very particularly sore spot. Uh, the sports boycott was was more a psychological thing uh, that it hit them in a, in a, in the solar plexus, uh, because I mean, as you are aware, we we with the kind of weather we generally have. We, we, we tend to be sportsmen, uh, and especially rugby. And when they, they could no longer uh, play rugby internationally, and of course cricket as well, that, that was a very powerful psychological blow. So I think especially the, the, these two, being uh, a pariah in the world, he realised, I mean, that they couldn't go on forever. What about the armed struggle? Could Would this have happened without the armed struggle, the ANC and Pan-African Congress armed struggle? Uh, the, the armed struggle was probably f- more a, a nuisance than something that uh, was uh, really effective. It, it, it was when they were able to hit uh, places like uh, Sassol that again... It was the psychological impact of this as the more than the real physical damage. And then possibly not being quite sure what was going to be happening. I mean, the sense of insecurity, especially the farmers who, who, who must have felt um, very vulnerable on, on the borders. It, it made a contribution, but I don't think we should exaggerate it. It, it, is, it is far more the fact that um, they could no longer count, just as a matter of course, on the support from, from the international community. Although uh, President Reagan and Mrs. Thatcher 
kept being very strong uh, allies. They could not be able to resist uh, the Cubans uh, quite as much as they were able to have done in the past. But the, the other thing is that they had hoped that they would knock the stuffing out of the people internally. Uh, repression was awful. Uh, and I mean, some of the things that we, we got to learn that we're, con we're confirming um, a lot of what we had suspected. I mean, the atrocities that were committed by largely the foot soldiers um, of, of apartheid, uh, they thought that those would have knocked the living daylights out of us, as it were. Uh, and it was just one of the wonderful things about the struggle that we did not end up giving up. Uh, and, and they realized, you know, especially after the formation of the United Democratic Front, they were going to have to decide whether they were going to maybe almost want to annihilate all of us. Because, I mean, people decided, well, we are going to have what they called mass democratic movement, um, and, and they would call it rolling action, when, when people would come out in droves uh, to demonstrate and protest. I think that that especially uh, must have played a very important part in getting Mr. Leg to decide that, hey, let's cut, cut our losses. Do you think that he miscalculated his ability to negotiate an entrenched white veto uh, when he uh, released Nelson Mandela? Do you think that's what he, his objective I, was? I, I suspect that he, he, he reckoned that he was going to be able to pull a fast one, uh, that... Uh, these guys um, would not not be quite as sophisticated and as smart as they turned out to be. He had thought, I mean, that he was going to make a few slick moves and and dazzle them. <laughs> you, uh, in your book, you say that um, <clears throat> there was great apprehension on election day in 1994 that the yeah. right wing white extremists and in Carter might subvert the elections with violence. Why do you think that did not happen? And what role do you think Nelson Mandela <laughs> played in reassuring the white community? I really have to say that I can't give a rational answer to that. You know, I, I, I was still at Bishop's Court. I was still incumbent Archbishop, and I decided you could vote anywhere more, you know, they didn't, you, you, we didn't have constituencies and, and you, that you had to vote in a particular, at a particular um, voting station. And so I, I decided I was going to vote in an, in an African township and I went to Kukuletu. And of course, I mean, one of the things that, that was so uh, surprising, I mean, and, and it thrilled the heart was to see the 
droves of people who had come out and people standing um, patiently in long, long, long lines. I mean, you, you remember the images. But what really shocked me was how vulnerable the people were. There were very, very few police about, you know, uh, to provide security or the army or anything like that. And, and really, it would have taken only a few crazy people with a, f with a few AK-47s to sow the most awful mayhem. It didn't happen. Now, why? I, 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 I can't actually give a satisfactory, uh, straightforward answer except to say that someone up there was betting for us. You know, really. Uh, I mean, because you know that just a few, a few weeks earlier, the this extreme uh, AWB, the Afrikaans Weerstand Bewegung, Afrikaans Resistance Movement, they had uh, uh, invaded what was then a Bantustan Uputazwana. Um, and and then they'd also launched an attack uh, on on the, the World Trade Center, where Cordessa had met. There were the drive-past uh, shootings that happened at taxi ranks, and and I think just one or two days before the election, there there was a bomb explo explosion outside the airport. Uh, in, in Johannesburg. So we were on a beating to nothing. And I, I mean, I, I really can't give you a, a rational, uh, unalloyed uh, uh, reason. I mean, how do you explain the fact that with people with the kind of antecedents that we had, that white and blacks could stand in the same queues and stand in line for hours on end and people were sharing sandwiches and sharing stories. I mean, it was as if someone had a massive magic wand and they had waved it over us in the twinkling of an eye that we had all undergone a strange metamorphosis. Uh, because, I mean, to, to, to have a white man who had been boss for so long standing with a worker, black worker, and chatting as if they'd suddenly discovered this major, made a major scientific discovery. These, these people, you know, are human. Uh, and, and they were talking about th the kinds of things that you would be chatting about, uh, the weather, and then talking about children, and I think discovering that they had much the same kind of aspirations you know, you want, you want a decent job, you want a good home, you want 
your children to be able to have a good education. So most um, commentators would would say, if, even even those who would uh, claim to be very secularized find, I mean, that they have to use the strange language of religion, that it was a miracle. Using the language of religion, <laughs> uh, you have said that your experience in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission led you to conclude that there is an awful depth of depravity to which we can all sink, yes. and that we possess an extraordinary capacity for evil. But on the other hand, you say apartheid is intrinsically evil and immoral, uh, and almost by definition it had to use equally evil and immoral methods. Mm. Is there not some tension between those two? W what made you conclude that everybody has an awful depth of depravity? Well, quite very simply, I mean, the, 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 the people who become perpetrators don't have horns. So far as I could make out, I hadn't seen horns sprouting from their foreheads, uh, nor did I, did I see them sitting very uncomfortably because they, they had their tails uh, twirled um, in, in their trousers. They're ordinary human beings. I mean, in, in, in the South African case, many of those who were part of death squads were respectable members of their white community, uh, people who went to church on on Sunday uh, every Sunday, um, and 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 to show that I mean it, it was something that in a sense was an aberration. For many, it, this was the first time when they came to the TRC, when they spilled the beans. For many, it was the first time that even their wives got to know that this was the kind of work in which their husbands were dabbling, uh, that on the face of it, they were as okay as you and I. And, and therefore, in, in, in many ways, there's no way in which you and I can predict, hey, I know that if I was in that kind of situation, I would not succumb to those temptations. I mean, and look, look at the people who supported Hitler. Uh, it, it, it wasn't crazies. I mean, it was university professors, it was, it was clergy, it was bishops, it was archbishops, it was, it was normal people, normal people in would say, but I mean, how, on, in the name of everything that is good, how is it possible for such intelligent people to have been hoodwinked by Hitler? And they were, for not, not just for a week, but uh, over, over, several, over several years. I said, and that, that is one of the incredible paradoxes of our experience in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was that, yes, we have this capacity for evil, each one of us. That is to say, none of us can ever say, I wouldn't do that. I, I'm, I swear that I know I would not, I would not have agreed to 
to torture a guy that way. That's not true. You can't say that of yourself? No, no. I can only say, there but for the grace of God go I. I, I would hope that God would give me the grace that when that kind of temptation arose, that I would not succumb. But uh, it's, it's, not, it's not something where I can be categorical. I mean, when you, when you think of the sorts of things that happen when a genocide happens, it's again not people who are intrinsically evil. You know, I mean, look at what happened in Rwanda. It was often priests and nuns who accepted the propaganda that was being produced who when when the Tutsis came looking for refuge would pretend to give them and then when the Hutus came they would betray them and and stand by as people were being mown down uh, but yeah, that is the devastating thing about us. But what I found so incredible was that this was not, in fact, the whole truth about us. No, in, I mean, one would have to say, exhilaratingly, it, it wasn't the whole truth. The remarkable thing is that yes, we have this capacity for evil, but even more incredibly, wonderfully, we have, we all have this extraordinary capacity for good. And that is what I took away with me after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, and, and it's almost become something of an obsession that when I am speaking, most of the time I'm trying to remind people that uh, we are actually created for goodness. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. You know, that, I mean, we are, we are fundamentally good. The aberration, the, the exception is, is not the good. The thing that is, that does not as we fit into the picture is the evil, and that's why you and I get so upset about, about awful things that happen. Because if the bad things were the norm, yes, we might, be, we might be upset, but we would probably shrug our shoulders and say, tough luck, that's how, as the Americans say, the cookie crumples. Can I ask you uh, about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? There has been criticism of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, on the basis that the balance was not right between the need for reconciliation and the need, the right of victims for individual justice, either criminal or civil, yes. uh, and the rule of law. I mean, Steve Biko's family made an application uh, to challenge the constitutionality yes. of removing their right of private yes. redress. Yes. What is your answer to that? Well, one is to say, I mean, that like any no human institution, it would be surprising if it was perfect. I mean, it's a given that because it is human, it is going to be flawed. It is flawed. 
But remember what Chief Justice Muhammad said in his judgment. The, 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 he was saying this is an ad hoc arrangement. This is not how South African jurisprudence is going to be happening after this. We are saying this is a special moment in the life of our nation. We are making a transition. It is one of the most delicate processes. Uh, and we, we are having to find special mechanisms to deal with our past to help us bridge a bridge we will use to cross from repression and ghastliness to a more normal society. But in his judgment, which you refer to, um, Chief Justice Mohammed uh, gave as a justification for upholding the uh, truth and reconciliation process and depriving individuals of their individual rights for redress, uh, that the army and the police uh, may have been the agency of terror They may be biding, waiting, conspiring to return to power. And if the net of punishment is cast too widely uh, or they're treated too harshly, there may be a backlash that plays into their hands. Isn't that really real politique? Yeah, no, but I mean, that is precisely the point. I mean, he was was saying, look, we have reached a very critical moment in the history of our country. Now, what do we want? Do we want a country that has a reasonable chance of making it uh, where you are saying, well, we've got to be making very sensitive judgments about justice, equity, stability? The possibility was real that had our parliamentarians said, we want to go the route of Nuremberg. The possibility was a very real one that that whole process would have been subverted horrendously because, as as the Chief Justice, the late Chief Justice was saying there, uh, these guys don't suddenly get to change from those who supported uh, repression and suddenly become the goodies. They would be saying, "We are going to look after our, our skins. If these guys want to come after us, we're going to make sure they don't. They don't get the opportunity." And and you see, the TRC, we we have we 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 got evidence that there were arms caches stashed all over the country which would mean that you say, what do you want? Do you want to, to have the wonderful feeling we, we have satisfied, and what have we satisfied? Retributive justice. You have satisfied it at what cost? At the cost of having dust and ashes. You say, ha ah, ha, now, uh, no, it's fine now. Justice has been satisfied, but where is South Africa? And there is no South Africa. There is a counter-argument. You, in your book, you say that you supported the extradition proceedings against General Pinochet. The counter-argument would be that the setting up of the International Criminal Court, 
prosecution of Milosevic, prosecution of uh, people in Rwanda, uh, acts as a deterrent against other uh, human rights abuses, other dictators around yes. the world. Yes. How do you see that no, tension? But I mean, the, the TRC actually was an incredible process because, you see, to grant amnesty, you didn't say anybody could come and, and you just stand there and you're granted amnesty. There was accountability. And, and what was wonderful was that we didn't have to prove your guilt. Uh, in order to get amnesty, you come up and you stand there and you say, I killed, I, I burnt his body. I, accepting accountability. And let me tell you, if you think it was going to be fairly straightforward, to do that under the full glare of television lights and your wife watches on television and hears her husband, is this what my husband was doing? Is this what our father was doing, the children watching. I, I can't believe that that was an easier option than having the retribution that you'd have had um, in, in, the, in a criminal, or in the International Crim uh, Criminal Court. Uh, but remember too that we said, and, and and it's it's in the it's in the preamble uh, of our constitution that we were going to be basing the ex this whole exercise on the principle of you don't have it in English Ubuntu 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 meaning that you see we are fundamentally made for community. And Ubuntu speaks about a search for harmony that, you know, the, the sumum bonum of our, of our existence is harmony, communal harmony. And Retribution, revenge, anger are subversive of this great good. And, and, and you see, you might say, ah, well, this is sort of idealistic. You look, you look at the Middle East and you say, now what is happening there? There you are seeing retribution at work. You have a suicide bomber who has been upset by the treatment meted out by the Israelis to his people, um, or her people, because you've, you've had instances now of women also, and they l set themselves off and they explode. And as sure as anything, there's, uh, retribution is going to be visited on, 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 the, on, the, on, that, on her community. And then you think that's the end of it, but it's not. It just sets off a, an endless ad infinitum process of uh, outrage with a counter 
to to the outrage and the counter the counter and 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 it's just going on and 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 that's exactly also what happened in Rwanda. But one of the uh, conditions of granting amnesty under the TRC was a full confession. Yeah. Uh, do you think it undermines the TRC process that ten years later, uh, the Minister of Law and Order Adrian Vlock uh, was given a suspe- suspended sentence a couple of weeks ago, having admitted that he ordered the police, the Commissioner of Police, yes. to try and murder your successor as General Counsel for yes. the uh, South African Church? I, I mean, he, they went to court. I mean, and uh, you, you had the full plenopoly of the law there and judges were sitting on the bench. But and there was a plea bargain and... Yeah, and well, yeah but I mean, that that is something that happens, doesn't it happen frequently in the United States, especially you say, look, if you, if you admit to this, we will drop uh, one or two of these charges or, you know, kind of thing. Uh, we are unhappy on another score. I mean, we are just unhappy that uh, there are others who may not get to appear. Uh, although, you see, the TRC, in its report, following actually on the basis of the law that set it up, uh, said that those who applied for amnesty and were not granted amnesty should should be prosecuted. And any who may have been known to have contravened whatever law uh, in, in the process of, of seeking to support apartheid uh, uh, should themselves be brought, brought to book. Unfortunately, it's taken, what? 1990, it's nearly, it's nearly 10 years. And, and, and one of the things that is worrying, <clears throat> and, and you may have seen that they, they, there are groups, especially representing victims, who, who are saying that what you are seeing happening is amnesty through the back door. And, and that, they believe, in many instances, subverts the rule of law. Uh, apart from... And do you agree with that? Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I mean, one of the questions is, have, you mentioned the foot soldiers, but have the generals, or not the generals, but the political generals, got off scot-free? Apart that from is, Adrian that is, that is that is That is one of the great sadness. I mean, one, one of my great sadnesses actually was that, by and large, the white community uh, spurned the TRC. And I've said to them, I've said... Fortunately, again, you know the thing that I said at the beginning, this is a moral universe, <laughs> and people have to live with themselves. They let pass an incredible opportunity uh, of coming to terms with their past. Now, it's going to be part of the baggage that they carry, and the structure of the universe is, is such that they can't just slough it off. It's, it's, going, it's going to take its toll. And I'm sad, I mean, that um, many of my uh, compatriots, white compatriots, um, did not take the opportunity of a very generous offer, a very magnanimous offer uh, that would have enabled them to say, yeah, 
These are some of the things we did. These are some of the things we condoned. These are some of the things that we allowed to happen because we were enjoying such a wonderful, wonderful um, standard of living at the expense of uh, our fellow South Africans. If we come back to Mr. de Klerk. Yes. In your book, you <clears throat> say that if you hadn't, you, that you supported him for the Nobel Peace Prize, yes. you were consulted by the committee. Yeah. Uh, but that if you had known then what you know now, you would have vehemently opposed it. Yes. Why do you say that? I'm I'm fond of him, you know. Uh, I'm just sad that he actually missed on an incredible opportunity for true greatness. I mean, I've said that uh, I laud him as highly as anyone else uh, for having been so wonderfully courageous uh, that he uh, initiated those developments that we, we spoke about in, in 1990. But, you know, he came, he, he appeared before the TRC twice, once when he made uh, the uh, uh, submission for his party, as other party le party leaders did, and and was very wonderfully handsome in the apologies that he made for the awfulnesses and the excesses of of a party. When he came later for the session where he would be cross-examined and so on. At the end of it, you know, I was so devastated. I broke down. I was, I was, I was saddened by how smart he's a very smart uh, customer. He's a he's a very smart lawyer. <laughs> I we I myself just wish he could have said when he was being asked on the basis on the basis of the minutes of the State Security Council. The, the, this, the, this council said, so-and-so should be eliminated. What did it mean? Oh, the sophistry was amazing. Do you believe that uh, he was aware that there were uh, security forces were being authorized to commit killings? We, or that he we turned told... A blind eye to it? We told them, I mean, there were, there were many times that people would say they believe the police are doing so-and-so. And, and, I mean, he, he has not, he's, not, he's not denied, for instance, the fact that they did give funds to Inkata, and they armed Inkata, and, and they knew, I mean, that they, they, they were engaging in acts of uh, violence and so forth. Uh, but I, is your criticism that he deliberately encouraged Inkata violence says to undermine the ANC? Uh, I mean, maybe that is, there is part of me that would say, we said there was a sinister third force. You know, I mean, they like, they like speaking about black-on-black black violence as if black-on-white violence might, might be better. They'd never spoken about white-on-white white violence. I've never heard, you know, I've never heard them speak... When they, when, when they were describing, say, Northern Ireland, never heard them speak about white-on-white white violence. Somehow, blacks, you know, blacks are not quite, quite like us. 
one of the extraordinary things was the the massacres that happened on the trains and you said now how do these guys the gunmen how do they know that uh, you are a member of the ANC and you are a member of Ingada because they 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 were they just shot uh, indiscriminately but looking at it at the level of the politicians the people at the top the government yeah. Mr. Declare is your criticism that he should have controlled it or I, that he knew about it and yes. or turned a blind eye to it? You, what, what I would have ex- hoped he could, at, at the very least, have said, he, sh- he could have said, we created the kind of climate that made these things possible. Not even that, you see. But he, is that as far as you go, yeah. go in your criticism yeah. or do you go further? I don't think it's necessary even to go further. I mean, it's it, it, it's just a, it's just a sadness that you know when when you produce evidence, police are torturing people, and and you show that it is a fairly universal phenomenon. He would say, no, uh, these the bad bad apples, you know, a few uh, a few exceptions. And you say, but I mean, the the exceptions are so universal that it makes a nonsense of there being exceptions. I don't know whether you once you once heard uh, a, a philosopher say, the trouble with theistic statements is is that uh, they die the deaths of a million, a thousand qualifications. He he would say no. It, it, it was this way, and and you know somebody said they they gave their instructions deliberately, ambiguously, so that they would be able to walk away from the kinds of things that they had, in fact, uh, uh, said should happen. I mean the the instructions that they gave that like eliminate, they say eliminate take out. Now the foot soldiers almost. Unanimously, you ask them, what did you understand when they said, eliminate so-and-so? Oh, it's obvious. I mean, it means I should, I should, we, should, we should kill him. What does it mean to take out the foot soldiers? Almost all of them. And then you come to Mr. Declare and say, what did you mean when you guys said this? He said, no, 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 no. We, we meant do something, I mean short of uh, killing, but I mean... Uh, and you don't believe that? I know I'm naive, uh, but I, I mean, there are limits to my naivety. Can I move forward to the present? We're now 13 years after yeah. the first free elections. Zimbabwe, you have described Robert Mugabe uh, as uh, a caricature of an African dictator, and you've criticised human rights abuses in Zimbabwe. Mm. Why do you think that uh, President Mbeki and the ANC uh, are supine, as critics would put it, in the face of those human rights abuses? In a way, I mean, I would say your guess is as good as mine. But let's let's try and uh, unravel this. I would think that part of it is that uh, Robert Mugabe was a freedom fighter and in many ways a hero 
in his in in having led a successful uh, struggle against uh, Ian Smith. I would also say that as far as Tabombegi is 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 concerned, many Westerners would probably not uh, understand this. For a very long time, Robert Mugabe was the star turn uh, on 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 the African stage, and I, in many ways, quite rightly. I mean, he's he's outstanding. I I I was very fond of him. I I had the highest regard for him. The media and everybody concentrated on him, and then this old man comes out of jail, and there's no subtlety on the part of of the media. The minute Nelson Mandela appeared on the scene, they dropped Mugabe like a hot potato. Now, there aren't very many of us who are able to handle that in ourselves, emotionally, psychologically, uh, that you become, at one moment, uh, you are the center of the spotlight, and then the next, there's no one. I mean, they, they would all, well, I mean, you know, anywhere in the world, when Nelson Mandela appears, everybody else is in the shade. Uh, he was able, Mugabe, was able to accept being made second fiddle because he probably said, well, this man is older and this man has spent 27 years in jail. Tabo would find it very difficult, one, He's younger, and in Africa, age still counts. And two, he never was in jail. I mean, he was in exile, and exile is probably uh, rough, but not as rough as jail. Uh, I'm trying to find some excuse for, for his uh, so-called softly, softly approach. I do not myself agree with it. I have been reasonably vocal in, in my expression of uh, chagrin at, at, um, at the fact that they could behave in this kind of way. I've, I've said we ought to be hanging our heads in shame. And that goes for the ANC as it goes for the SEDEC. I mean, SEDEC have just recently said... Um, South African uh, Development. Yes, I mean, they've said, they've said the descriptions uh, of what is happening in Zimbabwe are an exaggeration. Just go and say that to people who, who can't buy a loaf of bread um, if they can find it in, in the shops in, in Zimbabwe and say, no, the descriptions of their plight um, are exaggerated. I, I am I'm sad. I am deeply saddened. We, we, we could be, we could sit so easily i mean and 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 not and not be more categorical uh, apart from anything else i mean if you if you are saying uh, uh, it might have been a white person or white persons and you might say well uh, after what they did to us maybe it's not to but it's black people uh, who are the victims they have no we have no excuse what what worries me even more, you know, is is what it says about our commitment to human rights. I mean, see, human rights, if they are going to be human rights at all, have to be universal, or they are nothing. To have sp special pleading, oh no no, Africans, 
understand it differently. Twaddle, I mean, you know, twaddle of the first order. On a parallel subject, AIDS, President Mbeki, notoriously an AIDS HIV denier, he has recently sacked his deputy health minister who was brought in and was a pioneer for rolling out retroviral drugs. Do you think that that is a setback in the fight against AIDS in South Africa? I just have to say, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, one is again said and... um, because the one thing, I mean, it, the, the way they dealt with the, the deputy minister uh, is fairly inconsistent with how they have dealt with other people. I mean, we've had something called the travel gate uh, as just one example uh, where it has seemed, I mean, that they have been a great deal more lenient. Uh, I'm, this I'm, is a, 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 a corruption among yeah, ANC yes, uh, um, yes. MPs. Uh, and I mean, you would have thought that if they were, if they were going to be firm and strict, that uh, they would be even-handed. Let's let's say that uh, one of the saving graces in this whole debacle about uh, HIV and AIDS uh, in our country is that they do now have a, a plan uh, which most people support. Uh, I mean, we've got a, a body headed by our present uh, deputy president, uh, and yeah, it's a it's a more more conventional approach to the pandemic, and uh, it couldn't have come sooner. Looking to the future, the next ten years, are you optimistic about the future of South Africa? Or not, do you have reservations? Not, not optimistic. I've never been an optimist. No, 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 no. I'm always hopeful. We, we have a wonderful bunch of people in this country, of all races. Our potential... I, I was speaking at, uh, at a university last Friday, and I said, and I've said this before, we are really a scintillating success waiting to happen. You know, we, because we've got, we've got the capacities. We've got the gifted people of all races. Uh, if we, if we just gave everybody the opportunity, as the Americans would say, I mean, we'd be a humdinger. When you say everybody the opportunity, are you talking about the continuing huge gap, economic gap between in wealth between blacks well, and whites? One is that, but I, I'm saying particularly. It's, it's sad to see the number of people we allow to be sidelined. There are people who were involved in the struggle, people of different races, uh, who might not necessarily have been politically aligned, who now uh, are languishing on, on the sidelines, who could be making tremendous contributions. Um, but yes, of course, the the other awful thing is 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 that and we warned, I mean, in the TRC report uh, about the gap between the rich and the poor, uh, that if this was not narrowed and narrowed dramatically quickly, we could just as well kiss reconciliation goodbye. And you see, the thing now Do you think is, not enough has been done to raise the standard no, of living? Uh, I think, I mean, that we, we, we are letting people get really proud of 
because they are seeing now not just white people, they're seeing it's, it's, it's a good thing. I mean, the blacks making it. But often it is, it is that you, you are seeing a small elite and when you look at black empowerment, you see a recycling more or less of the same people benefiting uh, and uh, that's not good that's not that's not what we that's not what we struggled for we struggled so that we would have a society that was a caring society we might not be the most prosperous but it, it would be a society in which all were aware and experienced the fact that they mattered. You uh, said shortly after the election that the ANC had stopped the gravy train only long enough to get on themselves. Is that an issue that you, is of importance <laughs> or is it a minor I was, issue? I was actually quoting somebody else, but never mind. I, I was just surprised at, at how quickly uh, we seem to succumb to, to the blandishments of power, of money, and so on. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I'm beginning to learn is, is that I think we were over-naive. <laughs> we thought, you know, hey, we have been involved in a struggle, and it was a noble struggle, and, and people were incredibly idealistic. It was wonderful, actually, uh, the way people could be altruistic. You know, most, almost everybody was involved in the struggle, wasn't in it for what they would get for it. It was that everybody was saying, I am in this in order to ensure that our people are liberated. And we thought, uh, naively, that all of these ideals would be transferred willy-nilly, automatically, to the post-apartheid period. Now we are discovering, hey, <laughs> uh, original sin doesn't know color skin. <laughs> Archbishop Tutu, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.